Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode number 84 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Zach Diamond, and I am a middle school music teacher and a Modern Classrooms implementer in Washington, D.C., and I'm also a Modern Classrooms mentor. And I'm really excited because for tonight's Teacher Spotlight episode, I actually have the pleasure of being joined by one of my former mentees, Aimee Pluger. So Aimee is a high school art teacher at Academic Arts High School in Minnesota, and I'm super excited she agreed to join me on the podcast tonight to talk about using modern classrooms in visual arts classes. Um, A lot of times people will sort of lump together all the arts classes, capital A arts, so music and art, design, all that kind of stuff. Um, And I think that hopefully tonight I I will get to be educated by AMA, although I've seen a lot of your work already. Um, And listeners will sort of be uh, let in on the ways that music and arts classes are are often very different. So AMA, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I actually already know quite a lot about your class, having mentored <laughs> you and seen a lot of your uh, your materials. But for our listeners, could you tell us just a little bit more about you know who you are, what you teach, and how you started your Modern Classrooms journey? Yeah, for sure. Um, so like you mentioned, I'm a uh, high school art teacher in Minnesota. I've actually been teaching seven years now, um, but I'm licensed K-12. And I've actually taught all the grade levels um, throughout my teaching career at some point in time. Um, I started out teaching K-8, and then I moved to 6-8, and then finally up to high school. Um, and I've enjoyed all of the ages, but especially high schoolers, because it's really cool to see them grow from like awkward ninth graders to young adults and seeing them like go across the stage and graduate, which is awesome. Um, And I started out my modern classroom journey uh, just through the mentorship program. Uh, One of my coworkers had suggested to our entire teaching team that we take the, there's like the free modern classrooms introductory training on the modern classrooms website. And we all did it and we're like, yeah, this is awesome. We had like a huge meeting about it. We're like, yep, we're going to sign up for the um, mentorship program. So all of us signed up and we all picked our different times. And I had, hadn't really heard about modern classroom before, but I had been using Edpuzzle and I know that's like really ingrained into modern classroom because it's a really great way to leverage learning. Um, But I was using that with distance learning because I didn't know what else to do to get students engaged. And I just wanted to learn more about it. And Modern Classroom was the way to do it. Yeah, definitely. That's an interesting connection, the the Edpuzzle connection. I feel like that's an interesting sort of inlet into Modern Classrooms. Yeah. Cool. I guess, so you finished the virtual mentorship program, I think, in the end of 2021, right? It was just a few months ago. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, it was like mid-January, I think. Okay, yeah. So just just a, a couple of months ago, you you finished it and you started rolling it out mid year. How did that go for you? I'm I'm always curious to hear uh, from my mentees how the the program goes for them. You know how the model goes for them after finishing the program. Um, but I rarely get to do it on the yeah. podcast, like on the mic. So I'm curious to hear how it's gone for you. It's been a couple months. What yeah. Do you think? Um. So the mentorship program is awesome. I definitely learned a lot. Um. And it had its ups and downs for me just because I think we had talked about it like at one of my 
first meetings with you um, or also virtually through the Google Doc, but I was struggling with like how to actually implement it in my own way. Um, and by talking with you, I'd figured out like, oh, I just really need to break things down a lot more to like break it down in very like specific steps in order for me to make this work in my classroom. Um, and I'm just someone who I change up my curriculum or adjust it all the time because I'm always trying to fix the things that I didn't think worked right. Or honestly, sometimes I just get bored and I'm like, I don't know, I'm going to try something new. So, um, in the course I used a unit that I've actually taught. I'd probably say I've taught it at least five or six years in a row. Um, and I've changed it every single time, um, and had different iterations of it. Um, but it wasn't always successful and I didn't feel like it always was, uh, students were always doing the best that they could on it. Um, and I wasn't doing my best. So it was really helpful with the course to go in and make adjustments and additions to that lesson and unit so that I could actually like roll out something really, really strong. And honestly, at this moment right now, I'm still in like, I feel like I'm not like fully like a modern classroom yet. Um, just because there's a lot of time um, needed to create all like the different units um, to make them student ready. So like making all of the videos and stuff. Um, But I'm gradually building those things in Um, my entire Google classroom. I run and organize like I would like a modern, I don't know. Everyone's modern classroom is different. Yeah. (laughs) But the way that I want my modern classroom to look is organized that way on Google classroom. And I've broken down all the assignments, et cetera, that way. Um, and done all like the skill building and mastery checks, but like the, the nitty gritty of like the videos and stuff I'm still working on, um, and adding as I go. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that like Kareem and I have talked about this on the podcast before where having a summer to sort of plan and get yourself really get your modern classroom together and then start off the year with everything already in place. I think that that will help you to sort of feel like, you know, this is legit. This is the real deal now. But but also, like you said, every modern classroom looks different, and it doesn't sound like you're doing anything wrong by modern right. classrooms, right? <laughs> um, that's that's awesome. I feel like that's another piece of advice that comes up a lot here is that people said to take it slow, like roll it out one piece at a time, do what you're comfortable with. Um, and I I think the LMS is a huge part of a modern classroom too. Like in in a lot of cases, especially because we rely on blended instruction and instructional videos, it's like the primary interface to a lot of our content, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that that's definitely an important place for modern classrooms to happen, um, you know, first. Um, I'm curious to ask you as a follow-up question, what you were talking about, uh, about sort of like wanting to keep changing and sometimes getting bored of units and, and doing things like that. Have you thought about when you have instructional videos recorded, if you'll reuse them? I, I, uh, I love reusing my instructional videos because it sort of lightens the load. Um, but I also feel a lot of the times like if something didn't go great in a project, I want to tweak it and then I can just tweak that video or, you know, I can even come up with new projects and make new units. But uh, how, how, how do you feel about reusing videos if you've if you're changing your units that often? Um, I don't think it's a huge deal. I, when I make my videos, I try to keep them like very generic. Like I don't mention dates or times or even necessarily the project. I try to keep it more like skill based um, because a lot of my stuff is I'm teaching students specific skills uh, that they're going to go on and practice. If it's a specific lesson and I don't know, let's say like I'm doing something with art history, I'm pretty handy with iMovie. So I sometimes I've gone in and I've like grabbed things from old videos that I've recorded and like tossed it in with like a new video that I updated. 
Um, kind of like persistent assets kind of a thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't feel like it's, it's too much work. And then obviously if I like just super didn't think something went well, I'm just going to re record it or redo it. Yeah, no, but I, I do love the idea of a generic video. And I remember your videos you used, I think it was the term was draw along. Is that right? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Like those are really cool because it's like, it's not exactly an instructional video. It's more like a, a practice activity in the video. Yeah. Um, I like to do that. Um, so like in my classroom, like the, the draw along type thing, I do a lot of like in-person demos where it's honestly super challenging. That's why I look at, like having videos because in the classroom, like I have a dot cam that like, I don't know, the lighting in my classroom is not like ideal. And then the dot cam is also super old. So like, it's hard for kids to see. So I like the video portion, but I do a lot of things with students where it's like, okay, we're going to go and do this together. Kind of like the, I do, we do, um, you do kind of model. Yeah. Um, and so I try to make the videos kind of like the, we do together and then try to give them activities after that to do the, the, I do on their own. Yeah. I think that that's a, that I remember thinking that was a really cool adaptation of the I do, we do, you do kind of a model into a blended, blended modern classrooms sort of format. But are those videos, would you call those generic or are they more specific to uh, like a unit? I mean, I remember them being very sort of like off the cuff, like here's how you draw this. Yeah. <laughs> I would say some of them are very specific. Like I have like a grid where I teach kids how to use a grid, um, the grid method when they're creating a drawing. Um, that one's pretty specific, um, but you could tailor it to like kind of work with anything. I'm trying to think drawing like a face that's very specific, but anything that has to do with like value or color, like acrylic painting techniques, right. stuff like that. A lot of that stuff I can reuse. I've even made like a, how to clean your brushes so that you don't add to my brush graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> that's really fantastic. And I, I feel like I know, I know being in the world of arts education, the like value and color and those there's, I don't know, there's like seven of them or something. Oh, yeah. Seven. Yeah. So, so like those are generic, right? Cause kids will be making art using those seven or whatever number of, I guess, concepts throughout the whole year. Right. And you can reference back to these videos. You can use the videos again because color is not going to change from year to year. Right. So right, yeah, you can make a generic video that teaches that or teaches skills based on that, that are, that are used throughout you know, the whole year or the whole course or whatever. Okay. Very cool. Um, we really kind of just got into the weeds there and <laughs> it's cause I was, I was curious, but, um, let's zoom back out a little bit. I want to ask you, uh, just to describe sort of a typical day in your class. So listeners can get a sense of like, what does a modern art classroom look like? You know, what do students spend their time doing and, and what do you spend your time doing? Like how does MCP look in your class? Yeah. So, um, my classes are a hundred minutes long each day. So there's just a lot of time that students get to do work time. Um, our a hundred minutes every day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It is a lot. Um, but the reason we do it is so that, um, cause we do quarters and it's block scheduling and yeah, it's just worked really well for our students. So it's, it's almost, it was very hard to get used to because I was uh, accustomed to like a 47 minute class period and then like running around like crazy and trying to get things done. And now I'm like, I don't know what to do with half of this, all of this time. <laughs> um, but I figured it out. So yeah, there's a lot of time. Um, I start every class. We have something at our school called Take 10. So our school social worker leads um, SEL activities at the beginning of every single class. She like, we have like a school Zoom that we all join 
And it really helps like set the tone for the class or that day. And like, sometimes we're a very small school. We have about 120 students. Um, and so like, sometimes we'll go out in the commons, um, and all do like an activity together. So we start the day that way. And then I always have an agenda on my board with like a rundown of, uh, what students are doing that day, the learning targets. Um, and we have sketchbooks, so they have a starter every single day. And so when they come in, they have a really good idea of like exactly what they need to do to get started. So they all grab like their portfolios from the cabinet and then get their sketchbooks, um, and start drawing based on the prompts. And I try to keep it interesting with those. Um, I've been pulling a lot of inspiration from like silly TikTok videos. Um, and the kids think that I'm just hilarious. Well, I don't know if they think I'm hilarious. I think I'm hilarious. <laughs> um, a few of them think I'm really funny though. <laughs> and um, while they're doing that, I'm taking attendance and like checking in and stuff. And the reason I have sketchbooks is just because they're a really good way for kids to brainstorm and explore their new ideas, as well as um, there's a place for them to store all of the skill building and mastery check work that they do so that I'm full disclosure, like grading is one of my least favorite things. Um, It just, it stresses me out and it's just always subjective and it's hard with art. Like I try to have everything laid out, but it's also just a very subjective subject. Yeah. Um, But I find it super easy for me to like check on their progress by just like pulling out their sketchbook versus trying to sift through stacks of like turned in paper that they have in my turn in bin. And it's just like a place where they can make mistakes. So like when they're doing those skill building and mastery checks, it's not like, well, this is like my final whatever. Um, I has to be perfect. It's like, oh, I can kind of feel free to like actually try to do things and like make mistakes because it's okay. So that's kind of like the beginning of class. That's a long explanation of why I have sketchbooks. And then once I have class started, um, I typically have like a short lesson or a demo and I try to do like 12 minutes or less. And sometimes I'll do like a demo and then work time and then pull everyone back into the class and then do like another little mini lesson just because I have that huge amount of time. Then I set them off to do their work and they're either working on like skill building or mastery checks or they've moved on to like the final for a unit. And I've since doing Modern Classroom, the mentorship program, I break every unit down into steps Um, so like 1.0, 1.1, um, just so that I know where they are, um, and like what they need to like work on and like what skills they need support with. Um, and I also know like what they need to like, what, where they are with they're starting a final project, because I found before modern classroom, I was, I don't know, kids, I was all over the place sometimes. And so are kids. So it's good to like have that formal structure. It, It really is. It really is. I, I was kind of chuckling because that's, the piece of advice that I give to every single one of my mentees when they show me a like a, a unit plan, it's like some of these lessons are actually two or three lessons in one. And, and I think that like listeners who haven't been through the mentorship program um, should look at their units and take that into consideration. It's it's just it's such a important thing to do. And you're right that like it clarifies the sort of the progression, right? The path through the unit. Yeah, for sure. Because each step just builds on the last one and you you work your way through them and it's not like there's no ambiguity as to what you're supposed to be doing right now because each step is broken down so much yeah and i think i was one of the people you were like you got to break it down because you were like there's like a lot in that one lesson and i looked at it and i was like oh my gosh yeah like who like how would a student be able to like navigate that if i'm like if I've packed that much into the lesson so it really did help for me to just kind of break it down even further and honestly it doesn't make it 
more time for you as the teacher, like making that lesson or like breaking it down, it makes your job way, way easier in the long run if you break it down. So yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's it's easier for them to navigate. And it's also it's also easier for you, like when you grade the product of each individual lesson, if there's fewer things to sort of balance, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're accidentally teaching three different skills in one lesson, and you don't realize it, you know, you'll get the work from the students and then look at it and be like, well, you did this part right, but this part is wrong. And then this part isn't perfect, but it's not terrible. And so like, how do I grade this? Right. But if you break it up into the three parts, then you can say, first, you did this correctly, move on. And then the second one, you did not do this correctly. So let's revise. And then for the third one, you know, like each one is very clear that way. Yeah, that's what I really liked about it is it's very clear, like, hey, like you were not able to create, um, I don't know, like a three dimensional form in this skill building um, mastery check. Um, Like, hey, let's go back. I'm going to walk you through it. Let's try it again. Um, It just makes it so much easier because then when they get to their final and then they come up with something and I have this expectation of like, this is the parameters that I have for the assignment, like you have to show these skills in your final and then they haven't shown the mastery of it beforehand, it doesn't ever translate super well into a final. So it's really nice to have it broken down ahead of time because then I can catch that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, I use a class tracker. So I have that displayed on the board. Um, I was really nervous about displaying like where they are in the class in front of the whole class. And they honestly didn't seem to care. Um, I don't know why I was so nervous about it. They've actually been more motivated because they see, oh, my name, I'm in the yellow right now because I got real fancy with Google Sheets and I learned how to like do formulations to like adjust the colors automatically for me. Um, And they're like, oh, I'm in the yellow. So I was very proud of that. I spent probably too much time, but I like, I'm very proud that I learned how to do it. (laughs) I've done that too. (laughs) Way Um, too much time automating random stuff in my tracker. so satisfying. (laughs) It's satisfying. Exactly. But yeah, they're like, oh, I'm in the yellow. Okay. I got to get this done. Like, Hey, Amy, like I got this done. Like, um, can I move on or some stuff? I, they don't need to like ask to move on. They just can. Um, but I just like that they can see like, oh, like, hey, you're working on this assignment too or this lesson, like let's work together. And then I spend a lot of my time just like walking around the room. I check in with kids individually. I talk to them in small groups and I found it's a lot easier for me to pull like groups of students to work um, out in like a smaller work area in the hall briefly and then um, give them like small group instruction versus trying to like also pay attention to what everyone else in the class is doing and like worrying about that. I just know that everyone in the class has a very clear expectation of what they know they need to do and they're doing that. And then I can actually do the small group stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a topic that's been coming up on several episodes for the past couple of weeks where like the modern classroom just kind of runs itself and you can, you can pull kids into small groups. You can meet with one individual kid if you need to. And we've also, Tony Rose and I have also talked about just meeting with other adults who are visiting your classroom and leaving the kids basically alone, like not alone, alone, but you don't interact with them for a little bit. And the class just runs because everyone can see on the tracker what to do. Um, and, and I agree. I mean, a lot of people are apprehensive about displaying the tracker publicly before they try it. And my experience has been exactly the same as yours, which is that the students just didn't care. You know, like the the person who was making the biggest deal out of it was definitely me before mm-hmm. I tried. And the kids look at their own name and it also sort of destigmatizes uh, 
the things that are often stigmatized in class, like kids calling each other dumb and that kind of stuff. You know, that doesn't happen in my class because there's no judgment as to their intelligence. It's very, very specifically their progress and not their grades. Yep. I would totally agree. Uh, Yeah. I feel like the way that it's framed is very much like, this is your progress. And so if you're behind, I'm going to support you. And there's people here who can support you, but it's not like saying you're dumb. I think that that's, that's the kind of stigma that people associate with displaying this publicly, but that's not what we're saying. And I think that your experience really bears that out. And so has mine that the students just kind of don't care. Yeah, I definitely made a way bigger deal about it than it needed to be. And once I did, I was like, Oh, I don't know why I didn't do this before. (laughs) Yeah. And that's not to say that teachers shouldn't be apprehensive. It is it is kind of strange at first. Um, it's definitely one of the most uncomfortable things that I, I thought was like going into the model. I was like, really? But it is my I have completely changed my my tone on this. Listeners will know from me saying it like <laughs> this. I'm very much in favor of the public tracker now. Yeah, for sure. I feel like if you're someone who is like apprehensive about it, there's you can always do it where like just your single student can like have access to it or instead of displaying it like... I don't know. You can like email it out. I don't know. I haven't figured out like the more individualized setting, but you can do it in like a less public way and kids can still know where they're at. Yeah. And some teachers have come up with really creative ways to use individual trackers. And I I totally respect that. If you want to do it that way and you have the sort of bandwidth and you've you've got a way you want to do it, that's great. Um, I feel like my public tracker gives me a lot of really, really important information. Also, it's very functional for my class. And so, um, yeah. I'm going to bang that drum forever, but (laughs) yeah. Well, so let's move on to my next question for you, which is one that uh, is actually sort of similar between music and art and I guess theater and all sorts of arts classes, which is that we, we allow for, and we, we sort of even require, and we teach this to our students um, choice and freedom creatively. And you were sort of mentioning this with the idea of grading subjective work like art, Um, And my experience is very similar grading students songs that they make for me. You know, we can't always plan out everything that our students will do because they will make decisions for their own artwork. Right. And so I guess I'm curious how you leverage the model to support that sort of exploration, that creative exploration and you know, artistic expression when students have a lot of choices to make. And you, you know, like we talked about very much chunking up the units and having very specific steps. How do you balance that, you know, student choice and student freedom in an arts class with, with modern classrooms? Yeah. Um, so I really try to make my classes as open-ended as I can, because ultimately like my goal is I want them to create things that they're interested in, because if they're not interested in it, they're not going to do it. And it's not fun. Um, and I don't really, I like to learn about what my students are interested in and like who they are as people. And you don't get that unless you're giving them that open-ended choice. So what I've really focused on is like the actual skills I want students to learn. And then I give them like, I don't know, I kind of describe it like, it's not really a box. It's more like there's a fence that you can jump over if you want to. Uh, these are the skills, um, that I want you to use in your final project. You choose, your subject matter, how you want to do it, how you want to incorporate those skills, and you kind of run with it based on what you've practiced. And I've even told students like, hey, if you don't want to use this method of art making, like I had a student last quarter actually who was like, I really don't want to use the grid method. And I was like, you know what, that's okay. But you just need to show me that you know how to do it so that like in the future, if because this person is very artistic. Um, If you are like, oh, I really want to use this method because I can't get this drawing to look as 
uh, realistic as I want, then you know how to use that method. But on your final, if you're like, no, I have a different method I want to use, but I've shown my teacher that I can do this if I needed to, um, I'm totally fine with that. Um, and then I guess all my projects are themed um, and based on student choice. And I don't know if you've ever heard of like choice-based learning in the art room, but I did, I, I don't know, I dug into that probably four or five years ago, um, where you are basing all of your student work um, on choice and they actually kind of decide even the materials that they're using. I haven't gone totally that direction just because I haven't quite figured out how to like manage the material part of that. Um, but I have my own little hybrid of it where I provide the parameters of the little fence that they can choose to jump over and weave in and out of. And then I've also just learned with the choice-based stuff, if I don't give students like a little tiny bit of direction, they get really, really overwhelmed. Um, and when I do give the direction, I just try to keep it as generic as possible so that then they can really take it where they want to. Yeah, no. And we were talking about that before having those generic videos, right? The more the more generic you can make your instruction in a, in a class like ours, I think the more freedom the kids have, but also like the more clarity as to what they're supposed to be doing. Yes. Which and I love the idea of of fences that they can jump over. Um I've never thought about it that way because you're not drawing a box around them. You're not confining them truly creatively. You're saying like these are rules you can actually break if it's in service of better artwork, you know, I have a, I have a rule that I teach my students and I really like harp on it all year. I call it the two, four, eight rule, which is that in music, almost every duration of things is in, is in, you know, some multiple of two and then four and then eight or 16. Uh, but anyway, you know, I have students who will come to me and be like, Mr. Diamond, this doesn't follow the two, four, eight rule, but when it does, it doesn't, it doesn't sound as good. And I'll be like, okay, well then, you know, have it be seven. Fine. That's fine with me. Um, if it sounds better that way, it's your song. And if it does sound better, I'll, I'll be impressed, you know, that they realize that they're breaking the rule and are doing it intentionally. I, I love that. And I, I love the idea of keeping it generic and viewing the rules as sort of like guidelines, you know, fence posts to try and sort of follow. But there's still wiggle room even within that. Mm -hmm. I think that's very cool. Yeah. And I honestly, I have students, I have a rubric that I set up that's based on like the fence that I've put up. Um, and I have kids grade themselves first and write down like, Hey, like, why did you choose to do this? Almost like a mini artist statement for every single, um, final for a unit. And then like, what did you struggle with? What are you the most proud of with this work? And I found that one, it makes my job a lot easier for grading them because they've actually been forced to do that reflection, like the self-reflection before turning it in. Um, and we also do some like mini uh, critiques and stuff as well, like where they show all their students in the class their work and get feedback. Um, but it also helps me because I can see like, oh, they're actually being honest with me about, hey, I struggled with this um, and look what I did. I'm most proud of this. And because art's so subjective when you're grading, and I tell kids this straight up, like I'm not worried about... Um, how your art looks compared to the person sitting next to you. I'm just worried about you trying what your best is and like putting forth your best effort with a piece of art and showing me that. Yeah. And also I think that in a class like art or even a class like music, you know, an artistic class like this, a creative class, each student's strengths may be completely different, but also still very strong. Yep. I would agree. Right. Like, so the kid sitting next to you might be really, really good at drawing, but you are really, really good at painting or something. And, mm -hmm. you know, you don't need to compare yourself to their drawing. 
yeah, I think that that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. And I love this as sort of thinking about like project-based classes in general, just how, how we can use that very granular, broken up, chunked up type of a unit while still providing a lot of student choice and freedom in, in how things are done uh, in terms of like developing a final product or a project. So yeah, that's, that's very cool. Um, as I was thinking about that question, I also thought of the, the way in modern classrooms that we classify our lessons as must, should, and aspire to do. And that, uh, the reason I thought of that is because I guess the fence posts or the guidelines might be sort of like your must do's. Is that how you structure the class? Is like you make sure that students are doing the things that they absolutely have to do so that you know that they learned it. And then they have other ways that they can sort of extend out beyond that in the should and aspire to do's. Or how how do you use that sort of scheme of lesson classification? Yeah. So um, I, I classify any activity where students are practicing a skill as skill building. Um, and there are just must do's like they need to show mastery of certain skills um, based on whatever material or kind of theme I've picked for the project. Um, and that's that's the must do's. And then their should do's and aspire to do's are just extensions for those students who've like worked ahead. They want to do more. Um, a should do is I've done should do's as like um, an art history lesson that I didn't necessarily have time to like provide a ton of detail to in a must do lesson. Cause I still provide some of that, but it's a lot more watered down. So it could be an extension off of that, or it could be, Hey, you've learned this skill. Let's like take it to the next level. You're going to try to do this. If that's a should do, um, I'm still in all honesty, kind of working out the aspire to do's. Um, I'm not totally there yet, but my goal is I want to have project extensions that challenge students in their final for a unit. So I could almost have like a class within a class um, for students who maybe are slightly more advanced um, in art and are like, I really want to like challenge myself to like do this um, versus the students that are, it's more of like an introductory thing for them. They're not quite as confident in their skills. So they want to stick with the fence posts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. My class is very similar. I mean, like my, I uh, I use sort of like song analysis assignments that I would love students to do, but they're not at all part of the project. It's just sort of like taking the stuff that they've learned as they've been working on their project and trying to hear it in songs that they know. And so, you know, if they don't get to it, that's fine. Their project will have no, they'll have, it'll have no effect on their project. Right. But, but, and so you sort of mentioned like the art history mm-hmm. kind of a thing, and that's what resonated with me. But I think also like the, the idea of, pushing the project even further. That's not something that I've done because I I mean, honestly, I think that like a lot of that freedom that you were talking about, that creative freedom and creative choice, that's where I've found the students in my class to do that. If they have the ability, like I, I, I try and plan those lessons so that students who want to do that can within the confines of the, the fence posts, if that makes sense. Yeah. I remember you and I, we structure our, are lesson classifications differently, right? Like you have must, should, and I guess aspire within each lesson. Is that right? Um, okay. So yeah, sometimes I'll do that. Sometimes I won't. Like some lessons are just specifically like a must do. Um, for example, like when they're learning how to draw facial features, I have like the must do is they have to follow along, um, with like my draw along video and then use the like gridded, picture that I have and then they have to like draw with that picture and like create their own after drawing along with me and then like a 
should do within that lesson would be, hey, if you don't want to draw based on like that grid piece of paper with a picture, you could go take a picture of your friend sitting next to you in class or just draw them sitting there and just draw their like eye. I break it down to like eyes, noses, and mouths. So I try to like provide some like wiggle room within each assignment, but not always. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's the kind of freedom that I was thinking of, like, of and, and choice, mm-hmm. right? Um, cool. Well, we have time for one more question and I don't feel like I can let you go without asking you this, which is a question that comes from art teachers to us um, that I have no idea how to answer, which is how do you manage the materials in a self-paced art class? How would you respond to that question? To be quite honest, I actually don't really think I've changed anything material wise. Um, I have always prepped like the materials beforehand um, and I just have things labeled for students to grab with a label of like, you need to grab this many. For example, I did sketchbooks. We made our sketchbooks yesterday for the first day of the quarter. And they have to grab a certain number of like insert pieces for their sketchbook to draw. And they have to grab like two pieces that they're going to label for like the folder tabs in their sketchbook and then a cover, a back cover, and then two like binder rings. And I just label that stuff. So it's like, oh, I'm like at this point, I can go grab this and then put it together. Um, for things like paint, um, my like most, I don't know, embarrassing, (laughs) mortifying story with paint was I had a student, um, any art teacher will know this, like we have like the pumps on your paint where instead of having to like tip the whole, like one gallon jug over, you just, or half gallon jug over, you like have a pump on it. And it was one of my first or second years teaching. And I had a cute little third grader who like, slammed on the paint uh, thing and got red paint all over her, her blonde hair and her hair was like tried red for the rest of the day. And I was like, no. So for paint, even with high schoolers, because yes, you would hope that high schoolers would be able to like manage paint, but I've still seen just paint spilled everywhere, like all over themselves. So I prepackage like things like paint into small storage cups and then they like grab them, like someone from their table grabs enough for the whole table and then they each get their own palette um, rather than using like the big bottles of paint. I feel like I have a lot more control over that. So like when they're working on something, I'm not like, oh God, please don't take out all my paint and like spill it everywhere. And like, that's like, I don't know. I see the paint is like in dollars. I'm like, oh my God, that's like a $20 bottle of paint. Um, <laughs> so I just have more, I feel like I have more control with that. And they also have the freedom to like, be like, Hey, I'm going to grab some paint. And then it's not a huge deal. Like I don't have to go grab like the jugs or anything. It's just in the little yeah. package things. And then things like printmaking. Um, I do linoleum printmaking where students will carve their linoleum blocks. Those like high priced or high, high value materials. Um, I have them show me very specific um, plans for a project and they have to have shown mastery of certain lessons and assignments to even get that material from me. So that's kind of like a behind my desk type thing. Same with my Sharpie pens because everyone takes Sharpies and it. <laughs> again, you have to like show me like, Hey, I have a plan for this. I'm going to use it. I'm going to return it to you. I just, I feel like there's more accountability with it. Um, so that's kind of what I do with materials. I haven't found it to be as, as challenging as you would think. Cool. I mean, I, I guess I have no experience with this at all, as I, as I was saying. But I, I think that it's interesting how, at least in my mind, as you were saying all that, it kind of ties in with what we were talking about before 
of like choice and freedom, especially I guess when students get to that final stage of their project and they're just doing whatever they want, like the materials are all there for them. And you've sort of, you've even like set up little like kits for them to just grab and go. Like if a student is working on something and they say, okay, I know I need paint or I know I need the Sharpie markers or the Sharpie pens. It's just all sort of like set up for them already. That's very cool. Um, I think that the, the thrust of this question, the reason that people are, are concerned about it is because like, if you're not teaching, you know, painting on Monday and then colored pencils on Tuesday and you can't then like plan it out and have your materials ready for each day because kids are self-pacing, right? They're on different lessons and they may need different things. Um, I think that might be where this question sort of comes from. But but again, like in a in an art class like yours, it sounds like there's enough freedom that you were kind of doing that anyway, right? Like kids might not all need the same thing every day anyway. So for sure. And like, I try to structure, that's kind of the idea behind choice-based um, art classrooms, which is where I did struggle was like, oh man, like, cause with that, your materials are, any of the materials are free great game, like every single day. Um, and I wanted to have a little more control than that, just because I felt like there were very specific like standards and skills that I needed to be able to teach that were more themed around like, we're going to use this material for this project. But like, everything in my room is labeled and kind of sectioned off so that it's easy. Like if a student is like, Hey, I really want to add this to my project. Cause I've had kids be like, I'm doing watercolor, but I also want to like Sharpie some stuff. And then they're like, Oh, Hey, can I do this? And I'll grab the material that they need. So it's kind of worked out in that sense for me. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really cool. I mean, I guess like I might be totally wrong and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like if you're an artist working in a studio, like you have all the stuff that you need and you just pick what you need. Right. So it's sort of the most authentic way of, of having an art class reflect the real work of an artist. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I would say that's, you kind of hit, hit that on the nose for sure. Like exact, that's exactly what it is to be an artist as you have the choice to use the materials that you want to use at that point in time. Um, so I, obviously there's a little more structure because they're all still learning, but I'm still trying to give that them that choice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's sort of like, you have to balance it obviously. Cause right. That a lot of them may have never used paint ever before. And so they don't know yeah. the damage that it can do, I guess. But, um, but yeah, like I feel like building toward that or at least striving for that sort of authentic, uh, level of choice. That That's very cool. That's very cool. That's a, that's a great way to answer this question. I think. Thanks. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It's so nice to get to talk to you again and hear sort of like how your classroom is is going and how, uh, I mean, honestly, for me to learn more about art classes, it's always fun to to hear the differences and similarities between my, my class and an art class. Um, so thank you for, for hopping on. Yeah, of course. Uh, how can our listeners find you online? How can they connect with you if they want to hear more? Um, you can feel free to follow me. Um, I have my like public Instagram. It's called serendipitous joy art, or you can shoot me an email at serendipitous joy Um, and this is kind of, um, an Instagram account where I have my own artwork and just other projects that I'm working on, but you're more than welcome to reach out to me there. Awesome. Thank you again. Um, this has been a real joy for me. Listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes and an outline for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 84. This episode's recap and transcript will be uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So if you're interested in that, be sure to check there or check back here in the show notes for this episode. And uh, that, that'll do it. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday. 
Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.